0: This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen Gertman of the Ascendant Spirits Distillery in Buellton, California, near Santa Barbara. Thanks for joining me today, Stephen.
1: Pleasure, Zachary. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So Stephen, tell me about your distillery. What are you building here at Ascendant? Ascendant Spirits is the first full service distillery in Santa Barbara County since Prohibition. So I wanted to build a distillery that was able to produce innovative new products that had never been made in this part of the country before, and potentially products that had never been made at all before. I think we've had some success with that. We've also been able to, I think, have some success with some classic products as well. And we really want to grow to be one of, if not the premier craft distillery in the state of California.
0: But you certainly are starting off with quite a variety of spirits here that we'll get into in in a little bit. But anyways, I'm very excited to get into more discussion with you about the unique products that you're making here. But first, you know, we're located in one of California's prime wine regions. It's a region known for wineries and even more and more breweries. Why open up a distillery in wine country? What was your thought about that?
1: There's three main reasons I decided to open a distillery here. The first was nobody else was here. I saw a big hole in the market Mm -hmm. between LA, my colleague down there, and the Bay Area. There really wasn't much distilling going on in the coast of California. So this was an area that I thought would respond well And I also came here because of the agriculture, besides grapes, which this region is famous for. There are a lot of other beautiful agricultural products that are grown here on the Central Coast. We have a tremendously long growing season, and I can source those agricultural products for a lot of our spirits. In addition to that, we sit in a really unique geographic area, the Transverse Mountain Range. We're actually in one of the valleys of the Transverse Mountain Range, and this Transverse Range is the only One of its kind in the North American continent, where the mountains run perpendicular to the ocean, as opposed to north to south, they run east to west, which means we have very warm days, as you're experiencing today. Mid-February, it's potentially going to hit 90 degrees here today. (laughs) Sorry, everyone else. And then because there's nothing blocking the ocean, cold air rushes in off the cold Pacific, and the temperature drops very quickly at night. So we have extreme temperature fluctuations, which really helps the aspiration of whiskey barrels here and accelerates our aging process. We've certainly seen some real proof of concept in that since we started here. The other big reason is people come to this region to drink. (laughs) It's largely wine that attracts them. I mean, We are in an area that was made famous by the movie Sideways, and a lot of people come here to drink wine, but many are happy that there is something besides wine. To drink, a lot of gentlemen, a lot of ladies are like, "Thank God, there's something besides Pinot and Chardonnay, and more Pinot and more Chardonnay, and yes. Syrah or some other stuff."
0: This one's a little bit oakier than the last one, I think I remember. <laughs> and the
1: next one, hey, let's try something else. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, wait, and look, whiskey. Let's go there. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, thank God, there's some whiskey. I've been dying for something besides wine, <laughs> and we've had great response. And I think a lot of wineries as well enjoy sending people here because it's not in direct competition with them. okay. Sending someone to another winery might not be the best business decision for them. But if someone's drinking a cocktail versus a glass of wine, they're probably not a toss-up between the two. It's, they're probably very clear on that decision. So we're not competing in that same way.
0: Do you see that, that wineries are willing to help you out a little bit? Or is there a bit of camaraderie between them and not as much competition? Is that something that you've been experiencing? By being Uh, here?
1: I certainly have seen a lot of people who are sent here, specifically Hmm. from wineries, uh, who will tell us, oh, this winery told us to come see you. And there is certainly camaraderie. People have been very welcoming to us. They're not, oh, we don't don't need a distillery around here. (laughs) This is wine country. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I think there's also a sense of camaraderie largely between the wineries as there are between us distilleries. There is a sense of rising tide raises all boats. Yeah, And us being here in this area and being another attraction only helps draw more people to the area, more tourism, more people who want to come back and do it again.
0: So what was it like being the first distillery in the area then from just a permitting perspective? Because unlike wineries and breweries, there's a whole other level of paperwork and government oversight that's involved. Was there some education that you had to do of local officials to get them comfortable with the idea
1: of a distillery opening up? It was certainly an interesting process and we are far more regulated than beer and wine are. Mm -hmm. And being the first in the county certainly presented some challenges. Getting licensed by the state, by the feds at the TTP, was while a mountain of paperwork, actually relatively painless for us, believe it or not. I had the ability to take a peek at some of my friends' filings to sort of see what they had done to make sure we were crossing all our T's and dotting all our I's. We also work with a very good law firm here in California that specializes in alcoholic beverage law. They were very helpful. Oh, cool. So I guess that is kind
0: of a benefit of just being in California in general that the alcohol infrastructure support services is very mature uh, throughout the state.
1: Correct, correct. In theory, that law firm can help people on the federal level, just not on the state level. So we're lucky that they can do both for us. But the biggest challenge was here on the county level because they had never had anyone quite like us before. They had certainly questions, be they from the level of environmental health and safety, building codes, everything else that made our initial construction take longer than we had anticipated and of course be more expensive that way. But we were able to work through that all and while it did take longer than we liked, we were able to open our doors March 1st, 2013. It's a light industrial neighborhood that you're in over here.
0: Did you seek this out? How did you find the space? You're kind of talking about all the local regulations that were involved, distilling being considered high hazard. You need very specialized sprinkler systems and all sorts of things that don't generally get built into uh, commercial spaces. Did any of that go into your decision to move into this area?
1: Certainly, there were spaces I was looking at prior to this did not have sprinkler systems and other stuff. And you're looking at the expense of retrofitting all that. And it's certainly more and more dollars. And there's a lot of capital investment you have to put up before you can sell your first bottle of spirits. So. Yeah. You basically have to build your distillery, and then you go say, hey, can I turn it on? (laughs) Exactly. It's very painful. A lot of people think, oh, this sounds like fun. I'm like, you know, think very carefully about this before you decide to start your own distillery. But we actually sort of found this building by accident. The winery next to us has a restaurant. We've been driving around looking for places, and we're like, we had not found anything good, and we're feeling a little down, and like, well, let's go get some lunch at their restaurant. And Drove down the road here and I realized, oh shoot, look at that. There's a craft brewery here as well. That's kind of cool. And then we drive past the next building and I see a sign, space for rent. And I'm like, oh, let's pull in there. Let's take a peek. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking in the windows and... They've got sprinklers and it's empty and it's a warehouse and it looks just right. Clearly, they're okay with alcohol being produced in this area. Right, and there was as we dug into it, we saw there was other alcohol licensees in this multi-tenant warehouse building. Mm-hmm. So it at least had, had a history with the feds, with the ABC. So we knew we could get, we could probably get licensed here. So yeah. I was still working at another distillery at the time, but we started negotiating with the landlord and mm-hmm. everything just. Clicked in and it's been a good fit for us ever since. Because having a brewery on one side of us and a winery on the other side, it makes this quite a little attraction for uh, people who want to imbibe on all three, (laughs) or take their choice.
0: (laughs) Or take their choice. Is there a? um a built-in like, passport book to make sure you've
1: hit all of the three. I think we're actually talking with the Chamber of Commerce about working on something like really? that. They really want to build up this area even more yeah. to make it even more conducive to tourism because the winery has a restaurant. There's a wonderful restaurant up the road. And there's another winery around the corner. There might even be someone else looking to do some distilling up the road. Wow. So we're turning into quite the little hub. One of the city officials joked with me when we were getting started that they should rename the street Booze Alley. <laughs> but the fact that CHP has their offices here as well. I don't think they would like changing their business cards to CHP office on Booze Alley. Huh?
0: <laughs> Be the most famous CHP office, uh, <laughs> which is California Highway Patrol for everyone who's not familiar with that. <laughs> so that, that's kind of cool. Being clustered here then with other producers probably has a multiplication effect of positive things. I, I would imagine people who build a distillery up on a farm road somewhere now have to worry about can my bottle delivery truck make it up this narrow driveway? Or will my barrel guy be able to find me or anything? People know you're here. You know all the attendant resources can get here, for lack of a better word. As you're getting started and you're thinking about all the things that go into starting up a distillery, at least you don't have to worry about, can things get delivered? Can people find me? Will this be a suitable facility? Exactly. We knew that
1: it was easy for 40-foot trailers to get in here and pick up shipments or drop stuff off or city services, other things that we would need were going to be available. And also the fact that there was established businesses here that we could use as a landmark for people finding us oh, do you know where this is? We're right next door.
0: <laughs> That's a good point.
1: It's been very helpful and it, there's a good camaraderie, I would say, between all of us and we have helped each other out in neighborly ways when we can. And the wineries asked if I would distill some stuff up for, for them to use for sanitation purposes or for fortifying a port or other stuff. So there's always ways we're finding potentially to work together. Yeah, excuse me, borrow a cup of
0: sanitizer. <laughs> exactly. Uh, your neighbor's coming over. <laughs> I did that
1: to the brewery one time. Did yes. you?
0: Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. It's an important issue for any distillery, but I imagine more so in California. Where does your water come from? And are you having any access issues right now?
1: Luckily, we have not had any access issues here. It certainly is a point of ongoing concern for me because, uh, as I'm sure many people have heard, we've been experiencing a historic drought. This year, we finally have gotten some rain. We're about, I think, at about three quarters of our average annual rainfall, which is exciting. We haven't gotten the same snowpack here in California, which is a little concerning as well because that usually is what feeds us for the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. Because when the rain stops in California, it stops. It it stops. Yeah, you don't get any
0: um, midsummer Yeah, (laughs) necessarily.
1: Right. Last year on our anniversary, we had eight inches of rain, but that was like the only rain we had all year. Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, it happens when we have an event here. Um, (laughs) What are the odds? But it's bizarre having grown up in the Northeast of going months and months and months and months without seeing a drop of rain. Originally, I liked it. It seemed (laughs) nice. But that was before I was concerned about not having any more water. So the water resources here in the city of Beulton have been very well managed. A lot that they're drawing from local wells here, uh, which are high producing. So they haven't had to do, to the best of my knowledge, anything like some other places in California where they've had to drill deeper and deeper and deeper. And certainly the recharging that we've had this year is certainly helpful. But it is a concern in the growth of my business here and has made me sort of consider what options I have, what I can do to work with the city, with our natural resources here. Do I expand in another location, in another state? It certainly forces one to be creative, that's for sure.
0: So on the one hand, thank God you're connected to city water. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about managing your own well. But on the other hand, you're sharing a municipal well with the entire city and the city has to supply everyone else so it doesn't mean you're scot-free
1: just because you have a uh, city water exactly yeah and then there's also what we do with our water here in house as oh. well which is important to our products mm-hmm. the well water that we get most of the water in southern california is extremely hard Oh, really? Very, very hard water, which doesn't necessarily sound like a terrible thing. There's minerals certainly in there that we might want, but there's also minerals in there that we don't want. So we reverse osmosis, treat all the water that goes into our product. And then when I am doing something like doing a mash for whiskey, I actually have a cocktail of minerals that I've designed to emulate the limestone filtered water from Kentucky.
0: No way, really?
1: That I will add to our heating water. And so those minerals will dissolve in and give us a very similar profile, gives us the right minerality I'm looking for, the right pH that I'm looking for. Because uh, we unfortunately do not sit on a giant limestone shelf, right. <laughs> and also there can be spikes of iron in the local well water here, and that's really bad for fermentation. So that's one of the other reasons we want to make sure we processed our water in house and make sure it was ideal for our conditions. And that's a bit of a headache, but it seems to have done well with what we've made with it. So yeah. I think you know, we've had good response to the product. Things are tasting right. That it's it's working well. So that's what we do to make up for that other problem. And we also soften our water. That feeds our machines. Oh, yeah. Because I don't want them scaling up like my shower door does
0: okay. at home. <laughs>
1: right.
0: You don't need your boiler just seizing up on you in the middle of a run because there's too much
1: calcium deposit. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's very important for the boiler maintenance as well as things like our condenser maintenance. So I don't have stock in CLR or something. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's important that we do that as well. But water is always a concern. For us, a different level than it is like for our winery neighbors. They're just worried about irrigating, but all their water is contained within their grapes right. already for the most part. Wacky. But they don't get to make whiskey. So Very true. You yeah. can't make whiskey from grapes.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your marketing. Mm-hmm. How do you promote your products? Do you use print advertising? Do you use online social media? How do you get the when you're out? Just starting, I assume you can't afford a $300,000 a month PR firm or something to blast it out across the world. How do you get the word out about your distillery just two years out?
1: Correct. We certainly have a limited budget in marketing for sure. We also feel that the demographic that we are selling to for a large part doesn't respond to a lot of classic advertising marketing work that a lot of big conventional brands might use. They don't want to drink something that they're seeing on billboards everywhere and print ads everywhere. What we refer to as discovery marketing. They want to feel that they discovered this product and that they're onto something new and interesting and cool as opposed to, oh yeah, everybody's drinking that. <laughs> um Yeah, here you are tucked down the street and they drive
0: by, oh my God, there's a distillery here. Right, right.
1: And maybe that's something that we're just telling ourselves so we don't have (laughs) to uh, spend as much money. But it certainly relies more on some of the word of mouth, a lot more on social media, which is certainly more affordable for someone of our size. We do have informal relationship with a PR firm that we've worked with a little bit with, but they're not on retainer for us or anything of that nature and we also find that the best marketing tool for us is having people taste the product when they can taste it and see the quality and compare the quality to some of the monster brands that they're used to it sells itself so that's really one of our best marketing so competitions tasting events things of that nature where we can get hundreds and hundreds of people to actually taste the product that's our best marketing tool that we found And then those people are spreading it through social media as well or telling their friends who are restaurateurs or bar owners or whatever, and really trying to work closely as well with people in the trade, those bar managers, those bartenders, mixologists. We just did something with the USBG up in San Francisco. We're always sort of looking in creative ways so we can work with some of those tastemakers who sort of are on that cutting edge and then stuff will trickle down from there. I don't know, just like fashion, where some of the crazy stuff that you see people wearing on the runway doesn't necessarily show up on the street, but it influences what happens years out from that first appearance there. So we feel that that's the best use of our time and dollars. And we have an experienced sales staff. Oh, do you? Is, yeah. Okay, so it's um, not just
0: you out there distilling and then knocking on doors and <laughs> be very tough. I, yeah.
1: I, am, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I'm one of the best sales tools. I feel and any or any owner slash distiller is one of their best salespeople because they can speak most eloquently. Typically, some are a <laughs> little antisocial, but typically they're the people who can be the best face and salesperson. Tom Bullet, for example, with Bullet Bourbon, was instrumental in the growth of that brand because he was out there basically selling it all the time people know about Bullet Bourbon. It wasn't necessarily that he was back in there working any stills, but more power to him for what he was able to accomplish miraculously in you know all that hard work. But I certainly felt it was key, as well as getting advice from some key advisors that we have experienced people in this business. It's not the same as selling soap or shoes or something else. It's a different language dealing with specific problems. So we have a staff here. It's only a Few people, but it's still people who are typically about a decade of experience selling spirits or other alcohol first and spirits Spirits and or wine, Mm -hmm. mainly spirits, and it really makes a difference because they know. How to do it, and also they have cultivated relationships over the years with people because there's so much of this business that is relationship based, especially it's still in very sales. much
0: a boots on the ground kind of an. I mean, you still have to knock on the doors, you still have to be in front of people, know how to get to bar managers, I assume, and and get them to taste your product, see if they can take it on. So yeah. being able to have that confidence to walk in, and also just have the relationship, I would imagine.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Having those relationships, the networking that occurs, and being able to get those meetings get those meetings with distributors, other things. It's really important, we felt, and we think it's paying dividends. Yeah, Um,
0: You're now in 20 states, didn't you say? We're in
1: over 20 states and we plan on being in, I think about, 33 by the end of the quarter might be a little after the end of the quarter but close to that
0: Um. very cool obviously that growth comes a lot from a distributor and their ability to get you out into new markets and also just from your own filling out paperwork how did you find your distributor how did you get in touch with them how did you get someone to, to pick you up
1: here in California, where we started, where we were basically only in California until a good chunk of the way through uh, last year, through uh, 2014, we had started actually with a small beer distributor here, and that was really just getting out the door, but we were getting so much interest south and north of our local sort of tri-county area that we needed to step it up. There, there was just an issue with the infrastructure, and being able to service the accounts who were asking for our product. So we sort of shopped around. In California, there's basically three large distributors who dominate the market. And we ended up with Southern Wine and Spirits here in California. And they're the largest distributor in the United States. And one of the reasons that we thought that was a good partnership for us was because of their presence uh, throughout the United States that would make it easier for us doing well here in California that then introductions could be made to This gentleman in this state or you know, this lady in this state, and you should talk to these guys because they're doing some great stuff and you know, they'd be a good addition for you because as we discovered a little bit after the fact, every state, even with a big distributor like that for the most part, is almost like an independent franchise in some ways. There is the big mothership out of Florida for Southern, but every state is standalone in some aspects. So We're not with Southern in every single state where they operate because we would give them first dibs typically, but sometimes it's not the perfect pairing. So we're sort of under the gun to find some distributors with a big program that we landed with a large restaurant group. So we started, (laughs) had sort of a fire drill where we were, you know, shopping around in a hurry and. It allowed us to start some new relationships as well with some folks who operate in states that Southern does not operate in. You know, there's some crossover for sure, but it's also like when we opened up selling in North Dakota. It was, well, who's the best distributor for our clients in North Dakota? Who's the best fit that will work for this sort of three part partnership that exists in the three tier system? and that's who we approached and we talked to them some before and that was the best fit in going with the Johnson Brothers in North Dakota and they operate in many other states. So. Well,
0: I, I think that's such an interesting point because just because you sign up with one of the big distributors, it doesn't mean you are wed to them Throughout the United States, you can still go out and find a fit if you think. I think some people sometimes can feel a little trapped by their distributor, perhaps. Well, that depends.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) If you do a national program with a distributor, which exists with some brands, they're going to be doing you in every one of their states that they operate, typically. Which, if that's the deal that works for you guys, again, that's the best fit for you. Some states you are kind of trapped in franchise states where it's, for better or worse, that's how the law exists for the time being and has for quite some time where you sort of are wed to each other. So just like when you're getting married, you want to make sure you're doing it with the right person <laughs> make sure, yeah. and have whatever prenup you need to have or something. But you're not necessarily trapped. It depends. Make sure you read, if you're signing a contract, read that contract very carefully. Be very savvy about how you're entering into agreements with people because if you're a small producer... It can be very painful if you're in a bad relationship. I have a friend who had a bad relationship and basically had to shut down and start over in some ways because of that bad relationship. So, we for the most part, I think, have been very pleased, have been very careful, and have been very pleased with our relationships. And we're starting to really grow. It, it's tough when you're a small guy in working with large distributors, most of them are large, to get attention from people from the top to the bottom, you know, from the executives to the yeah. sales reps on the ground. I mean, they have a lot of other brands that they have to sell to keep their lights on and get make sure they get their paychecks and keep their jobs and things of that nature.
0: And you can't promise the top salesman a trip to Cancun or something like that. Right. Uh, we don't
1: have the pockets right. to be sending everyone on uh, wild trips and putting lots of uh, incentives out there or things of that nature. But we think we really bring added value to their portfolio, which is what we really try and... Educate them on that this is where the market is growing. The big boys have some great products for sure, and they're not going away anytime soon, but there's less innovation there. It's harder for them to innovate. And this is the sort of stuff that people are asking for more and more. Just like we saw with craft brewing, where it was Budweiser, Coors, Miller, all the big boys dominated, dominated for years and years. And then these small people, you know, Boston Beer Company, Lagunitas, Sierra Nevada, and now the Countless thousands more have just been growing and growing and growing. And that big sort of industrial sized beer is the fastest shrinking sector of the alcoholic beverage market. So I think they see the writing on the wall that this is where the most growth dollars are in the business of spirits is in that super premium, ultra premium craft spirits. And that's good by us. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, you're, and you're, you're kind of seeing it in your customers too. You offer a unique product. You're not competing on cost, right? You're not competing on price. You aren't selling a $15 handle of vodka. You're chasing an entirely different segment that's willing to spend more for a unique experience, for a unique taste.
1: Correct. Yeah. Correct, and, and that's one of the biggest pieces of education. That's one of the biggest hurdles. Is people are used. To, why should I pay so much more for this product? And that's something that we've been educating, and people I think are learning more and more about. When it's there's economies of scale.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> if you're
1: making something by the millions of cases, unit price goes down. When you're making it by the hundreds of cases, it's more expensive. When you're very hands on and you have a great attention to detail, like we do, that shows both in the quality of the product. And unfortunately, the price. It just takes time. It takes time. Spend that time with it. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, you know, the labor costs, the cost of goods, everything else. It's more expensive when you're making handmade sort of fashion products that you're doing on a small scale and not on a giant industrial scale necessarily.
0: Let's start talking about your products. Enough with all the large. Focus business talk. What do you make here? <laughs> what does Ascendant putting in bottles? What? Well, what, what do you want?
1: Yeah. <laughs> what you want? What you need? Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's kind of the amazing thing about your facility is you really are set up to be able to try just about anything. Correct. Yeah.
1: We have one large still that we produce most of our products on, but we also have a small pilot still that we can produce products on. That allows us as well to do when we're pumping out a big run of whiskey or something, we can fiddle around on the small still and do R&D work. So we're always trying to innovate and try new things. And we have lots of experiments in the works at any one time. I have a professor emeritus from Cal Poly of San Luis Obispo who consults with us. And we're always working on R&D stuff. We were just doing some sensory work yesterday, actually. Oh, Uh, really? Yeah. It's the thing that gives me the most enjoyment is that playing, essentially, and trying new things and some stuff is abject failures. <laughs> and then you go, wow, you know, but you learned from that. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't have made 500 gallons of that. Uh, well, <laughs> that's that's why we have the small still. That's what the small still is for. <laughs> it's much cheaper to do it, you know, in a five to 30 gallon range than it is a 500 range. But really, we can make almost anything that you can make in the United States. We've gotten lots of requests. Oh, are you going to make tequila? Well, you can't make tequila in the United States. And unfortunately, agave spirits, I think, suffers from a real marketing problem. Plus, agave is a real pain to work with. Uh, is it a- Yeah. I mean, you know, processing the agave is not a real simple process. And they're very good at it down there. And I will, I'm more than happy to let them keep doing it for the time being. They got it going. So, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you
0: get to focus on your whiskeys here. Right. And- so,
1: currently, we have four whiskeys and four vodkas that we have on the market. We will be shortly releasing our first gin, as well as our first brandy products. And we're always looking at what other crazy, unique things we can do. There's one in particular, I can't tell you what it is. Oh, come on. (laughs) But something that no one I think has thought of that we've stumbled across that we're really excited about. I need to work with my mixologist and see if it'll actually... It tastes good, but is anyone actually going to use this? That's the key. Okay. Well, uh, do you have a Twitter handle? Will you Will you let everyone know
0: what this is
1: <laughs> once? To- yeah, well, certainly, you know, our, we, I think we're a little more focused on our Facebook and okay. on our Twitter. We're, we're working on improving our social media presence more and more by the day. But certainly at the you know Ascendant Spirits Distillery and Tasting Room, we will certainly, when we're releasing new stuff, we blast it out. And I think our Twitter is... AS distillery, because Twitter has a character limit. What's well, yeah. all the character limits with Twitter <laughs> about? Jeez.
0: It's all the joy of T9 yeah. with all the sophistication of a supercomputer. <laughs> it's great. So you're working on this product X so you don't know if anyone's going to use. You have your four vodkas, you have your gin that's coming up. What is your taste-making
1: process? Whose
0: input do you seek? How do you know it's good enough to put in a bottle?
1: Well, I, of course, try and taste things myself. Okay, <laughs> There are certainly products like the gin, for example. I'm a huge gin fan, and I fit within the key demographic of that gin. So, if I enjoy it, I think other people who enjoy gin will probably enjoy it. But largely when we're when I'm doing R&D work, we taste stuff in-house with multiple people. You know, I have a good staff who have a variety of palates and and preferences. I also try and taste as many well-respected people in the trade bartenders mixologists we certainly get visitors here uh, and have relationships with people out in the greater world and bring them a sample or they'll come here and sample something and i'll get feedback from them and like with the gym i mean i've done well over 25 experimental oh gyms my gosh because i keep tweaking and tweaking i want to get it right and has, you know has so many potential ingredients that you can use that it's a lot of fun but it's takes the longest to get dialed in in my opinion or like our Smoke Ghost Chili Vodka. I had a friend here who used to own a bar up in San Francisco. He's from Hong Kong, and he tasted it and said, "Oh, that's fantastic!" But it was an early version. Uh, he said, "But it's too spicy for Caucasians." <laughs> he said, "That's perfect." <laughs> he's, he's like, "That's perfect for Asia, uh-huh. but you, you should tone it down for Caucasians." Okay. <laughs> so we and we did, and it was similar feedback that I gotten from our in-house mixologist. Mm-hmm. He said, "That's." too spicy. You mm-hmm. wanna like maybe take it down by half because mm-hmm. we want people to drink it. We don't want people to use an eyedropper. <laughs> and was a response to it as is, you know, and what we ended up producing and bottling it like has been phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And that's our latest vodka. So we have the ghost chili, which is Flavored with hardwood smoked ghost chilies. It's the only agricultural product that we get internationally, really, at the moment, is because you really want hot growing conditions for ghost chilies. You want hot soil, hot air to get their full spiciness. Mm -hmm. I tried sourcing some locally. They just didn't have the same kick. Interesting. We also and have something like
0: this, like a jalapeno, just wouldn't do it. Needs to be that ghost chili, it needs to be. Well, there's
1: certainly a sex appeal to the ghost chili, right. for sure. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I wanted those hardwood smoked ghost chilies is in some other chili vodkas, I found that they can have sort of a vegetative green bell pepper quality, mm-hmm. which, if you like that, is fine. But I wasn't a big fan of it. I thought it was sort of a shortcoming. And that smokiness gives a lot of depth of character. And really, has, I think has a lot more uses in mixology. And of course, there's always the because it is spicy that you know someone might just try and pull a prank on their friend or something. <laughs> I think that's happened to me before. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's happened to maybe all of us at some yeah. <laughs> time. And then uh, let's see our other vodkas. We have our strawberry vodka because we are in the heart of strawberry country here in the Central Coast. I mean, if you drive around, you'll see a lot of strawberry fields. And we source those straight from the farm, literally you drive out into the fields and get them fresh picked.
0: Oh, wow. So no time spent in a freezer or anything. It's from the field straight into here.
1: Right. They're at that peak freshness, ripeness, full flavor. And we bring them back here, process them immediately, because if you've ever bought organic strawberries at the grocery store, Something seems to happen in your car or something. <laughs> yeah, where you get home and all of a sudden they've already gone moldy. I don't know. Oh. Is my car a mold like mm. even? I don't. I don't have any lung problems, but right now you got 15 minutes to eat them and then that's about exactly <laughs> exactly. It's crazy. So that certainly gives us a little bit of a more of a window. But we literally process them the same day. Sort of have a party in here where we're all sitting around. Cutting the tops off of strawberries. And we really get that real strawberry flavor. All of our flavoring is done with a real agricultural product yeah. as opposed to a natural flavor. Uh, a lot of people have reservations about a flavored vodka because they're used to whipped cream, marshmallow, bubble gum stuff, which is really created in a laboratory somewhere. There's a misperception on the word natural actually meaning something wholesome. <laughs> right. In, the, in food and beverage, natural really doesn't mean anything. All that it really means, to the best of my understanding, is that that chemical uh, that they're getting the flavor from had to naturally occur in nature somewhere. <laughs> okay. Even though it's typically synthesized, it had to occur. But there are those artificial flavors that never existed in nature that were completely man-made. So that's when you have that natural and artificial natural flavor. And
0: artificial. Wait a second. Uh, when you put it on your bottles,
1: though, it's farm to
0: bottle. It's it, farm to yep.
1: bottle. There is no other flavor additives that are putting there. And, and that shows in the taste. Like on the strawberries, it tastes like real strawberries. It doesn't yeah. taste like strawberry bubble gum mm-hmm. or something.
0: What is that flavor? Oh, that's what strawberries are supposed to taste like.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's more subtle than those overpowering perfume chemical sort of flavors, which we think is advantageous because some of those flavored vodkas where it's all chemical based, it really is just so powerful and so dominant that if you try and make a cocktail or something with it, it just zings through and can't layer it in there. Mm-hmm. Like no mixer can compete <laughs> with exactly, that flavor. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. And then our other flavored vodka is our caviar lime vodka, which does not is include fish eggs. Is it real caviar? It's <laughs> no fish eggs. Okay. The caviar lime is a rare type of lime. It's also known as the finger lime, but the growers have been rebranding it because the fruit comes out like beads of caviar. And I'll certainly show you some, so you can take pictures. Yeah, of Yeah, I definitely
0: put a photo of that on the website. Um, that would be
1: great. but really, what we're into with them is the essential oils and the skins, which have compounds in them not found in any other citrus. So it's they're really unique, and they really they have some powerful sort of essential oil qualities. So we're really after those skins. We yeah. end up using the limes whole. Oh, you know, do you cut them or anything, or no? Because we're really after that. They end up bursting in the process often. Okay. All that beautiful fruit is essentially lost on us. (laughs) But we typically get the seconds from the farm okay. that are a little undersized or more scratched up because the trees are very thorny. So less ideal for retail sale for them. But actually there's more skin per pound that way, more surface area. So it ends up working even better for our purposes. They have an outlet for selling the less desirable fruit. Yeah,
0: it's a great way for them to repurpose this perhaps waste product. Yeah. No. Oh, you'll take it? <laughs> great. Right. You'll buy it? Fantastic. We'll,
1: exactly. But then the fruit. Itself works great as a garnish in the cocktails that you make with the spirit, because that because of these little tiny beads, especially when you're making a carbonated cocktail, they'll sort of sink down to the bottom, but then the carbonation will lift them back up, and they can sort of dance around in there. And they're great on sushi. They're great on coconut ice cream. It's you know all (laughs) sorts of stuff. I just eat them like candy myself. Do you really? Oh, love them. Love them. I you know I'm a citrus. Sort of uh, nut always. So I literally eat them whole because I'm also curious. I'm always tasting the quality of the skin as well.
0: Okay, you don't have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> above and beyond is how you. Yeah,
1: <laughs> right. And then of course we also have our straight vodka, which is the base of the other three. It was not what I intentionally thought about making, but realized in order to make my caviar lime vodka, my strawberry vodka, my ghost chili vodka, I need to make vodka anyway. So might as well do it. And all our vodkas are um, from that same. American yellow corn base. Oh, it is. It's a yeah. corn-based vodka. It's a corn-based it? vodka. Okay. I really like it because A, it's sort of quintessentially American, corn being that American grain.
0: I think we grow a little bit of it here in the States.
1: A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> they use it for some other stuff. I don't know what. Actually, like...
0: Less noble thing, less worthy things,
1: but yeah. <laughs> well, there's but there's some noble things as well, like our tasting room cups are from a corn-based biodegradable plastic. Oh, really? So, oh, cool. Um, you know, there's, right. there's some good things that good. corn can do <laughs> besides make lots of alcohol. Yeah. I really like a hint of sweetness that I find that you get on the finish with a corn-based vodka. Because there are other vodkas that some, who I will not name, who can add some sweetener to the vodka, be it sugar or glycerin or something. And if they stay under a certain limit, they don't have to put anything on the bottle. Nobody needs to know. Exactly, wink, wink. (laughs) But we find that there's no need to do that, which is with our ethos of being very upfront and pure in our products.
0: I would like to highlight that point too. If someone who wants to make a product is really looking for a very specific characteristic, it doesn't mean having to add it as a flavoring. It can oftentimes just, we'll try a different ingredient because in nature, you'll probably find the characteristic you're thinking of if you just keep looking for it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. and so like you've really found that with corn in your vodka and, and the way that you prepare it. Exactly. Yeah, And a lot of those, as we're talking about those flavor, all those natural flavors they do exist somewhere in nature, so they're out there somewhere. It's just getting them from that real source, I think, is a much more ethical way of doing it and more responsible than just pulling stuff out with a pipette and <laughs> dropping it in. <laughs> right. And then, in addition to our four vodkas, we have our four whiskeys that we do. The newest, the newest kid on the block, is our Semper Fi corn whiskey, which the name was actually my father's idea, but it stemmed from an idea that I had to make a red, white, and blue corn-based whiskey.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, interesting.
1: So, and we source all that corn from artisanal farms in northern Mexico.
0: Northern Mexico or northern New Mexico? Northern New Mexico, New Mexico. I'm Mexico. sorry. Okay.
1: I should have not see it better. <laughs> and I was surprised to learn, actually, from our food scientists that West Texas, northern New Mexico, is actually considered a very good corn-growing region. And he said, because he worked with some big food companies in his earlier part of his career, that's where apparently like Doritos sourced.
0: Oh, oh, their okay. corn for their corn, you know, they're very <laughs> they specific.
1: They were very specific about it. Yeah, not that our stuff tastes like tortillas. <laughs> to be clear, and all the corn that we use in that was organic and or non-GMO.
0: What is it like working with colored corn like that, like a, a blue corn? Does that impart
1: a different flavor? It's not super drastic. I definitely pick up a difference, and uh, if you've eaten red corn chips or blue, blue corn chips, you notice that they taste pretty much like white or yellow corn chips. There maybe is a little bit of difference. I get a little more sort of a bit more nutty quality, I find. And I definitely think it tastes a little different than our yellow corn whiskey that we do. So I think it definitely has a certain sex appeal to it and is patriotic. But also it was tying in, the, the name with Summer Fi sort of tied in on two levels. There's certainly the U.S. Marine Corps aspect that a lot of people respond to, Semper Fi being their motto, which means, it was short for Semper Fidelis, which means always faithful. But what I really wanted to do was be faithful to the history of corn whiskey in the United States. The earliest whiskey that I've ever been able to find record of is circa 1620 in an early Virginia colony. And it was, you know, a gentleman was writing to his brother back in England about how he made a mash of multicolored Indian corn and made a strong drink, as they call it, because they drank a lot of weak ale instead of water because they liked staying alive. And that's the first record. Sure, there might have been some other distillation that might have occurred, you know, some sailors and stuff. But that was the first, at least, written record of uh, whiskey distillation. I think the letter is in the archives at uh, Colonial Williamsburg, actually.
0: Oh, okay. So this whiskey then is just an homage to that earliest thing. You're also working with a multicolored mash, and um, you're making a strong drink as well. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah,
1: We've been getting some great response to that. It's actually probably the one I've been drinking the most of lately.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. I hope the rest of your products didn't hear your favoritism. <laughs> no, no,
1: I love them all. Yeah. They're all my babies. <laughs> then, speaking of the yellow corn whiskey, that would be our Silver Lightning Moonshine, which is a true corn whiskey. There's a lot of misconceptions, I think, about the word moonshine, which typically was a illicitly produced spirit. Originally, it was typically a corn whiskey. Prohibition, I think, steered it away from corn more because the revenuers were suspicious of people buying lots and lots of corn who didn't have livestock or cornbread bakery or something. <laughs> yeah, why do you need 5,000 pounds of corn every month? No reason, sir. No reason. <laughs> I, I, so? I, lots of popcorn. Yeah. So that I think that's also where some of the bad tasting reputation started to develop because people were using all sorts of other strange adjuncts. So ours is a real throwback to a corn whiskey style of moonshine. So it is a true whiskey. hmm Do you do a sugar shine or anything like that or is it... Um, nope. It's, nope. It's actually 100% corn. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There's no sugar to kick it up or anything else. And what I think one of the things that really benefits us is like most whiskey distillation that you'll see in the United States, especially at least all I've seen of the big boys back in Kentucky and Tennessee is we use open-top fermenters as opposed to closed-top fermenters like brewers do. But where we are here is this hotbed of fermentation. There's over 120 wineries in the area, the brewery next door, the winery next door. So there's sort of a local flora in the air. While we have our dominant yeast we inoculate with, that stuff that sprinkles in from the air definitely affects the flavor profile. So you're happy to kind of invite it in here. You want it to get in there and exactly. kind of affect fermentation. Exactly. They didn't tell me which one of a, I mean, one of my distributors told me how he'd been to a tequila distillery in Mexico and how they had planted fruit trees by their fermenters because of the yeast that grows on the fruit would sort of Oh, really? Sprinkle down, and they said it really affected the flavor of the product. So we really find that it creates a unique flavor profile that you can't necessarily emulate in yeah. another location. So Very cool. We're always trying to be unique. So <laughs> we have the silver lightning. We also then do a strawberry version of that. A oh, strawberry silver lightning. So it's pink lightning. So it's a strawberry. That's a better
0: marketing term than right. what I just said, yeah. yeah.
1: But a strawberry flavored corn whiskey. But it's the same base, slightly lower proof. And with the strawberries, we're using the vodka, and then the the king nowadays is uh, the bourbon, and that's been our most successful product to date. Surprise, surprise! I <laughs> think people like bourbon today. Uh, Whiskey's popular now. Yeah, what? I <laughs> hmm. should do something about that. As I've mentioned before, what we have bottled to date is stuff that I went out and I hand-sourced and brought back here to age. We're very transparent about that. We're not trying to mislead anyone because we've only been distilling here for a little over two years in-house. So
0: you have certain age statements. You do the math. You haven't been opened as long as that it was age. I think not many people know, even though it's a well-known secret, that bourbon is sourced, whiskey is sourced from other larger distillers. But there's so much more to the creation process than just the distillation part. right? I mean, you still have to... All right, so congratulations. Here's a shipment of bourbon. Now make it drinkable. There's a blending process that goes into it. There's what water you mix into it. You treat your water very differently than other people treat their water. So just because you're coming off of a different person still doesn't mean your bourbon is going to taste anything at all versus someone who may have bought from that same run and is doing it in a different region with different climates, different water
1: you can still make it your own. Absolutely, absolutely. Every barrel of whiskey comes out unique and different. So that blending process, as you touched on, is so key in producing the final product. And as well as the aging conditions. I mean, it takes a matter of days to distill it, but it spends years in that barrel. I mean, that's one of the most painful parts about our business. (laughs) I have, you know, like my winemaker friends are like, Five years. Jeez. You know, <laughs> yeah. the most they do a wine in a barrel is two. Okay. <laughs> um, of course, you know, they they put stuff in bottle and let it sit around for a long time as well. Right. But they at least want to be able to drink some of it. Mm-hmm. But that process of aging is where you get a huge amount of your flavors. The temperature conditions, the humidity conditions, barrel rotation that you do, all sorts of stuff really influences that final product. So it's not just simply everything that comes off that still right. ends up tasting the same when you take it out of the barrel. I've opened barrels that smell like banana bread. I open mm-hmm. up ones that, you know, are intensely oaky, ones that are spicier, ones that have stewed berries, you know, are a strong yeah. influence. Cause there's so many chaotic variables that go into the barrels in particular. There's not usually just one tree that was used <laughs> in that barrel. Sure. You know, and those different staves or the trees on a north slope of a south slope where, you know, all these different th- little little things that we can't really control. And that's one of the beauties of it is that you get that variation. But that's part of where the real art and craft come into us where sort of a, you know, like the art and the magic yeah. sort of intersect right. in that process. And, and
0: be happy to kind of embrace that variation. You're not trying to make 10,000 barrels of bourbon that taste the exact same like every other bourbon on the market. Really embrace the fact that one barrel will taste different. And that's kind of what the experimentation that you're doing here and what craft
1: allows you to do. Exactly. I mean, we're using about, I mean, I want to maintain some consistency sure, okay. with my products.
0: <laughs> Everything's wildly different. You never right. know what you You know. never know. Um,
1: <laughs> you know, I think that our winemaker friends that get away with a lot of that every year, it's totally different. <laughs> well, it's basically. a different year. What do you want? <laughs> um, people don't want that with beer and with whiskey in particular. They want it to taste very consistent. So I have sort of a recipe that I follow as far as I want a barrel that tastes like this and a barrel that tastes like that and try and create a consistent flavor profile, there will be some natural variation there because we are only using eight barrels per batch. There's a lot of talk these days about, well, what's really small batch, especially with someone who's used a source whiskey? Well, it may have been produced on a larger still, but it's not like we're dumping hundreds and hundreds of barrels for a bottling. I'm individually picking out one barrel at a time to use in a very small bottling. We only produce in one bottling... Tops around 2,000 bottles, so it's just a small number of cases, and we only do that about once a month. So I would describe that as a pretty small batch. Yeah. <laughs> so there will be that little bit of variation between batch to batch, but we try and keep that um, that core flavor profile consistent as possible. But that's also part of the exciting part is because we hand label or hand number, I should say, all our bourbon. You know, so you can see which batch and which bottle from that batch, so you can know. Oh, I really liked batch seven, or I really like batch four, I really like this batch, and then you can try and seek out bottles from that batch, and we might have some stashed away from every batch. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of secrets. Planning for the future. Planning for the future.
0: (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about that then. I think we've gone over all of your products now, haven't we?
1: All that are available. All
0: that are available right now, and mysterious future products will come out later. Your bottles. How did you come up with the bottle design that you use? Did you go with a unique mold
1: did you work with a design group? How did your labels and your bottles come together? Excellent question. We did not go with unique molds, largely just for economic reasons and some degree of time as well. They take longer to manufacture typically. They're certainly more expensive to come out of the gates with. And you better hope you like them if you've had to buy 300 pallets of glass. <laughs> exactly, like, oh, exactly. You know what, actually. There, and And there's those problems as well. If you need to, space to put all that, all the other sorts of cascading problems that that can present. So we went with off-the-shelf forms. I tried to pick ones that I hadn't seen people really using yet. That's one of the weird things I find about spirits versus beer bottles all look the same. They all look the same, yep. uh, The labels are different, but maybe there's some clear, maybe some green, but mostly it's... A brown bottle. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and wine is going to come in a 750 liter green bottle. Right, right. Wine, you know, wine are for the most part very similar. There's more variation in wine bottles than there are in beer bottles, but still very much similar. You know, I don't think people go, well, I don't know. I think this wine bottle, I don't like the way, you know, sort of tapers right there. It's is chamfered it chamfered
0: enough? I don't know. Uh, right. Yeah. They,
1: they put this in a Bordeaux bottle? <laughs> well, how dare they? <laughs> But spirits, there's sort of this expectation that everyone has to look unique and different. Jeez, so much pressure they put on. Yeah, right. Come on, guys.
0: Everything else you got to worry about. Right. <laughs> and Why isn't your shape like an animal or something? Oh, Nobody no.
1: else has done that. Or the AK-47 oh, yeah. or something, you know. <laughs> right. Or violin. That's one of the things people actually do with the grappa, I've noticed, is they're not even necessarily interested in the grappa so much. Yeah. It, but are just so many beautiful grappa bottles, they buy them for the crazy, beautiful bottles right. that they get.
0: If the bottle gets to be too crazy, you do have to kind of wonder what's inside. What are you hiding with that beautiful
1: bottle? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Trying to gild the lily. So, I definitely tried to pick some slightly more uncommon forms, but then try and like beer, and have more impact in how we were labeling them. So, I worked with a couple of different designers on our different products. I have a bit of a background in design, so I can at least sort of speak the language and not just grudge yeah. a point. <laughs> right. um, more like, or something. La- yeah, exactly. Yeah. More something, or I just don't like it. Yeah. So, I worked with a designer up in Portland on our vodka bottles. Oh, okay. The wonders of the internet. Yeah. Now. Right. Yeah, how did uh, going ask you, how did you find them? Because it's
0: so personal to the brand to make sure that it's in line with what you think your whole brand should be. How did you
1: find the right designer for you? For the first two that we worked with, I sort of put up a posting looking for people and then talked with all the responses we got, looked at their portfolios and sort of saw their design styles and who I thought would be the best fit. And so we worked with this woman up in Portland for the vodka bottles. And I think they have a sort of distinct theme to them what you sort of want to do you want to create a brand identity and we get a lot of comments particularly from ladies on the vodka bottles which is what I was hoping for I wanted looking at the demographics those demographics are changing all the time but there's a lot of ladies who drink vodka and there were I should say a lot of women who would drink more vodka than they would brown spirits yes okay that certainly has been changing I think changing. conventional wisdom would hold that right yeah. and that has been changing and I'm totally fine with that. I love that. But we wanted to make a, a vodka bottle that appealed to a slightly more feminine eye potentially, but that wasn't so feminine that a man was afraid to buy. It. You're right, right. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a sure. lot of guys who drink vodka too. Mm-hmm. So we went with this unique bandana inspired print okay. to the bottle and I get a lot of ladies who are like, Oh, the bottle's so beautiful and I tell them, I made it just for them. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's provided a sort of a design theme that we can use for that line extension where we change the colors and some other little aspects, but then it's very recognizable as our American star
0: pocket brand. Okay, yeah, to, to, to see that on a shelf, right? Even if that was a slightly different color or a slightly different shape of bandana style, you would still say it's all part of the same
1: exactly. brand, all part of the same line. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Just like you'll see with something like how Absolute was so successful with sort of some of their variations on a general theme, I and mean, that's what you want to do is in creating that brand identity. Then the other, the moonshine and the bourbon, I worked with a woman down in LA and she's been, they've all been great to work with. She's done some other little design work for us as well. And she was great. And with all three of those, those were sort of the first three. What I really learned from my buddy was you want to make them viewable or identifiable from eight feet away. If they're on a back bar in dim lighting, you want to be able to see it and recognize it. and That's, we think we were successful in doing that. So with the bourbon, you know, I want something a little more masculine feeling and just being bold and distinct, but not necessarily being too ornate and just sort of letting the juice speak for itself. (laughs) Right. And then the silver lightning, the big silver lightning bolt on it, I think, again, sort of speaks for itself where even if you can't read some of the finer print, you can see there's a big silver lightning bolt right there. there. You know, what's I wonder that, what that is. What's that silver lightning thing? Well, that's silver lightning. It's actually, good um, guess. And you know, with the moonshine jug form for that, mason jars are a big pain in the ass to pour from. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's something I've heard from bartenders. They yeah. nice, label, not nice bottling, guys, but how am I supposed to use this behind a bar?
1: Right, right. Yeah. I think you can't put their pour tops in there very right. easily. I know it's, uh, some of those folks, they've had these custom-made right. pour top lids to put in there, but I don't think... That's really what they like working with so much. So the idea that something that was very usable from a bartender's perspective was also key in our choices in our bottle selection. Like the vodka in particular. There was a vodka bottle I liked early on, but it had a very short neck. hmm Didn't really work. Hard for a bartender to grab, grab. that from the rack. Yeah. Exactly.
0: And you want yours to be in the rack. You want yours to be yeah, widely we, used we by a bartender.
1: To be very comfortable yep. using the product. And then the the Semper Fi, that's a result of crowdsourced design work, actually. Oh really? Yep. So it was a combination of a guy in Sarajevo and a woman in Athens.
0: Whoa! Real? Okay. Never know. You
1: Never know. <laughs> you never know. No, that's <laughs> the, the beauties. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, amazing. To make an American whiskey label, but in the process, you're able to tell them what you like and what you don't like, and keep refining it and refining it, and get it to a place where you think it's just right.
0: So I guess I would say, when you're working with a creative group, then you want to make sure you can have that kind of relationship with them, where you can have an open discussion. Explain what you want and then make sure that they can act upon the direction you're giving. They're also comfortable with giving you feedback too.
1: Yes, absolutely. Because it's a
0: team, I guess is what I'm trying to get
1: at. Right, and then you want to know what's doable and you also need to take certain costs into perspective. One of the reasons that we did the silk screen printing on our vodka and our bourbon was... It's more expensive per unit, but it makes some of our bottling practices a lot easier. We don't need to run a labeler at the same time. Also, if someone spills a little bit out, runs down the bottle, you have less issues with sort of damage to the label and how that affects the appearance of the product. That's a good point. And cost that goes into, you know, like on the silver and the superfi, there's, we have, we have. Metallic foil hot stamping, which is works, but you know, costs more money. And yeah, stuff. so there's all these little bits and pieces, you know, it's never ending. <laughs> yeah, um, you think,
0: the... well, I want it to look exactly like this, then you think about all the little peat parts and that have to go into making that vision happen. It's like, oh, wait a second, <laughs>
1: oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's sometimes what you hear from you oh, but I think it'd be great if it looked like this. Well, actually, that would cost a whole lot of money. <laughs> um, it's like with, um, if you want really shiny gold. For a screen-printed bottle, like, mm-hmm. they actually use real gold. Whoa, okay. Because um, that's the only thing that gets that same mm-hmm. look. You, you want it to shine like gold? <laughs> yep. That's a little expensive. It's a little expensive, I bet, yeah. That drives up the per-unit cost, and then we have to pass that on to the consumer. And then they're like, why does this cost so much? Well, all those people drinking Goldschlager <laughs> used up all that gold. Yeah, they so. used up all <laughs> the. <laughs> <laughs> let's blame it
0: all on Goldschlager. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd have a beautiful golden bottle.
1: <laughs>
0: Solid gold every yeah. bottle but Your distillery has been operating for two years. You've expanded your distribution. You've hit a lot of very good, I would imagine, short-term goals. And and now you're looking to expand. Kind of taking a moment to look back, what do you wish you could go back in time and tell yourself when you were first starting? Oh, watch out for this. What do you wish you had known then that you know now?
1: I might say, don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) You're You're crazy. I love what I do. I'm passionate about it. I'm a complete and total slave to myself, though. Not everyone necessarily does that, but I'm working from the minute I wake up in the morning, yeah. you know, immediately turning over and checking the phone and checking the computer and starting to email people on the East Coast and things. And then, till the, you know, sometimes I'll pass out with my computer next to me and I'll wake up and, I'm, oh, shoot, I'm. Glad I didn't knock that off the bed. Okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> but since it's here, start
1: sending more emails. Well, you know, she's like, do it? oh, no. No, no. But it certainly can't be afraid of hard work in this sort of business. I think I wish I knew a little bit more about how distribution worked better. And I, I certainly heard some stories, but it's one of those things that you can never really know until you're in the thick of and actually having those conversations and dealing with those relationships. Just like being a parent or something, you think you oh, it'll be great, it'll be like that, you know. And then like oh my god, I'm not sleeping at all. This is <laughs> you know, this baby needs to be fed all the time. So it's
0: it's after it's out of the awful twos or whatever the terrible twos, and it right. still needs it. You know? Right, right. And yeah. you know,
1: and then you're thinking about oh my god, and they'll be a teenager and they'll yeah. hate me. But I think that's one of the biggest things I wish I had, had. But having not been in the industry before, it was something that there was no way of me really having a full appreciation of. Certainly, I've been used to working long, hard hours in my previous career, so that was not anything new to me. So I still really enjoy what we're doing. The other thing I think that I wish I'd appreciate was it's always hungry for more money. It's <laughs> oh, always yes. hungry for more money. Like you think you're, like, oh, well, this much money we'll be able to get, so you know, no, no, <laughs> you need more money. You need more money, and then you'll need more money on top of yeah. that because we're growing faster than we anticipated. So back to that sort of child analogy. It's like having a teenager who's going through a big growth spurt and yep. they need more clothing and they're, they're <laughs> eating tons of food. And it's right. just, you know, like, how can I keep up with this? Right, but I just bought all you <laughs> right. all new things. Why right. do you need more? Yeah, exactly.
0: What happened to the bottles we bought last month? They're already they're gone. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so that's sort of a good like with the kid, you're happy that they're growing and they're healthy mm-hmm. and everything's good, but it's at the same time kind of painful. So uh, we're growing fast and that's phenomenal but it's also got its hurdles that it presents which you got to deal with because you're you need to lay down more whiskey you need more place to put those barrels you need more place to put the bottles for all the increased volume you know and you need the room for the bottled inventory as you're waiting for it to ship out and it's just oh (laughs) no yeah so, thank God
0: for growth. Thank God for success, but it doesn't come without its cost. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: We have a great team of advisors and people that we put together to work with us on all this. And one of them is an old hand in this industry. He says, One of these days we'll figure out how to make money at this. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: We got all this cash coming in, but how do we make any money off of right, it? Right. Yeah, yeah. We got cash
1: coming in. We got cash going out. It keeps going on out, going out. Yeah. Right. You know, got to keep growing and keep growing. <laughs> and, you know, but. I certainly think it's more fun than making widgets or shampoo or something yeah. like that. We're making a product.
0: All like, you shampoo manufacturers, please send your emails to <laughs> steven <laughs> at ascendantspirits.com.
1: I still use shampoo, yeah, thankfully. <laughs> you know, but I guess And you they could, still
0: drink whiskey. I guess you could
1: wash your hair with whiskey, though. Wait a second. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe Ascendant. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't know. No, don't know. Mine's too good for that. Yeah, too good for yeah. <laughs> but we make a product that people enjoy and have a good time with and makes people happy. So... That's very satisfying when you get yep. people writing you or sending you stuff about how much they enjoy the product or that they're frustrated that they can't get something okay. because they <laughs> want it so bad. You know, that's that's a great compliment. Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so I guess since you are new to this side of the industry, actually producing a product, I'm always curious, has it changed the way you go out to bars? Has it changed the way you go out to restaurants? Are you able to relax when you're out or are you always looking behind the bar? Oh, am I back there? Where could I fit in? Can you relax when you go out or is it just work is always kind of going on in your mind?
1: Well, no matter what, work is always kind of going okay. on in my mind. But yes and no. I can go out and I can relax and have a good time, but there's also part of me that's sort of going like, oh, what's behind their back bar there? And and what's on their cocktail menu? And you know what's in their spirits list? And oh, they have this, but they don't have that. And oh, he's making his Manhattan that way or he's making his Moscow mule that, you know. So, there's a little element of that always, but there's elements in times certainly I can turn that off, usually after having run through it a little bit first. You know, I'll right. have to look at first the menu <laughs> and get it out of the way, and then I can, you know, enjoy myself.
0: Okay. Now that you've analyzed the
1: menu, you can enjoy your cocktail or whatever you're out there exactly. doing. Exactly. If it's good. If it's, <laughs> but, you know, in my former career, I was a television producer. Mm-hmm. So, it was a similar curse with that, where I'd be watching a TV show and I'd be, you know, part of me could enjoy it, but another part of me was going like, Oh, they did that or mm. oh, they lit that way, or you know, they're right. using that sort of thing, or you know. Or the
0: pilot you made would have been so much better than this drivel that they're putting on right. Right? Or, they pick it
1: up. Or what camera are they using for this show here? <laughs> you know. So right. I would have edited this differently, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. So but I think that's true almost for anyone in any industry that they're in where you're always gonna be having a more examiner's eye to that stuff that you're so familiar with. It's yeah. hard to turn that off. I'm sure if you've listened to interviews or something, i like They asked that question, they should ask this question. Jeez, you know. I guess just kind of wrapping up, You
0: know, something I always like to ask is somebody goes out to a store, they pick up a bottle of Ascendant. Is there a recipe that they should go home and try it with? What's a great way to experience one of
1: your spirits or two? Well, there's all sorts of great cocktails we can do with our stuff. We certainly have a mind towards mixology with what we're doing.
0: So ghost spirit vodka should probably just be had straight.
1: Ghost chili? Yeah, the the ghost chili. You can certainly drink it straight (laughs) if you like it that way. I have a friend who every time I see him, he wants a shot of it. But the one that we easy go to with that every single time and where most people's mind goes, Bloody Marys. Mm. It makes killer Bloody Marys. Wow, I bet. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make it in the first place was while I like it in certain applications for sure, I didn't find that I needed vinegar in a Bloody Mary. And so many hot sauces are very heavy on vinegar. So why did you, why don't you really need vinegar? No vinegar here, especially not. go we, we want it to turn into alcohol, not vinegar. And so you get this smoky complexity and you get that spice from the ghost chili and it makes really great Bloody Marys. We did an event and I saw in excess of 300, maybe 350 ghost chili covers in 40 minutes and people couldn't get them fast enough. And I told the mixologist, Next time we shouldn't use three garnishes. Okay, (laughs) it's not about the
0: garnish. Let's go. Yeah.
1: Well, you just couldn't make them bad. You know, (laughs) You know, like celery and the olive and the piece of cheese, and so that we certainly go to the other one. The caviar lime is Moscow Mules. It makes a killer Moscow Mule. I still suggest uh, you probably still want to use some fresh lime juice as well. I've certainly made uh, sort of a cheater Moscow Mule where it's just ginger beer and the caviar lime because. I'm tired and lazy.
0: <laughs> you got two hands, so that's right. Yeah,
1: but that sort of it gives that extra layer in there, which I find really delicious. The lime works well in so many applications: vodka tonics, vodka sodas. We also sometimes, when we're using the lime, add a little float, a little splash of the ghost chili. Oh, really? Add to a vodka tonic with a lime. That's interesting. It gives it a little <laughs> kick to it, and that lime and chili is such a classic combination as well. Makes great cosmos, Cape Cotters, so many applications where you might have some citrus with your vodka. Right. You can still use the citrus, but the caviar lime just really seems to take it to the next level. And being
0: naturally flavored, just like you mentioned, the flavor is so much more subtle than in an artificially, flavored, artificially naturally flavored product. Yeah, that you don't have to be afraid of kind of giving it that floater because it's not going to overpower anything in the
1: glass. Exactly. I wish we had smell-o-vision because the smell from it is just beautiful bourbon, I think people certainly have some ideas about cocktails. I won't, don't need to go there. Or of course, a lot of people just want it as is. The other ones that I think people have the most questions with are on the, the corn whiskeys because
0: mm-hmm.
1: they just don't know what to do with it necessarily. Right. And we found that it makes a great replacement for many other spirits. It's very, very flexible. we made all sorts of cocktails. We've done Basically, a version of an old fashioned with a moonshine, where we just were using a, sort of an extra heavy dose of aromatic bitters, and people had no idea that it was an unaged whiskey that they yeah. were drinking. We've done moonaritas. <laughs> a really that's a really simple one I tell people about all the time because it's very easy to do.
0: But what's the recipe
1: on that one? The straightforward recipe is basically one part agave, one part lime juice, two parts moonshine. Shake with ice. Pour over ice. Maybe garnish with some orange or muddle some orange in there. It's delicious. A lot of people get a tequila-like nose off of the corn whiskey. At least that's the only thing that they have to sort of compare it to. It doesn't taste like tequila, obviously, but it's a really interesting alternative. that Some people are afraid of it. Oh,
0: moonshine? Oh, (laughs) no. Will I go blind if I try? Right.
1: And well, there's the misperception, I think, uh, because a lot of of moonshines out there, if you look at the label, are neutral spirits. Mm -hmm. They're not actually a whiskey. So that's when we replace gin sometimes with the Moonshine for like a Collins. We've also done mules with the Moonshine. They're very flexible um, in replacing white spirits or sometimes uh, whiskey. We've done white Manhattans um, with them. So, And that's the great thing about spirits is I don't see a lot of people at home mixing their IPA with Imperial Stout <laughs> um, or people making their own red wine blends at home. You certainly can. I'm not saying you can't. But there's just this more open attitude with working yeah. with spirits that they're different colors in a palette for one to play with. And there's no right or wrong way to do anything. And people can experiment and have fun and create all sorts of new things. And I never have a problem with someone using it to do whatever they want. Okay, <laughs> uh, So people are like... Your whiskey is nice. Would you not want people putting coconut? I say, hey, they bought it. They can do whatever they want with it. <laughs> and I'm just happy they're buying it. The important
0: it. thing is they buy it. Yeah. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so they want to put coconut, feel free. If they want to put Diet Cherry Dr. Pepper mm-hmm. in it, which um, hmm. I know someone okay. who does.
0: I'm going to have to, you know, i have to stop you. <laughs> there is no right or wrong maybe. but It
1: kind of tastes like a Manhattan. Uh, it's okay. weird. It's weird. I, you know, it's Interesting. Ca- it's the ghetto Manhattan. The, yeah. you know, the, you know, I don't know. I tasted it. I was like, that's not as bad as I thought it would be.
0: Well, if anyone hears this interview or uh, not, if one, not when people my, hear this interview and they try it, please tweet at us. That's not <laughs> my main York suggestion. State. I'm just saying, <laughs> just saying it's okay. It be, I'm not offended. <laughs> yeah. Don't be afraid to experiment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Stephen. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for giving us some and and really going through everything. Where can people
1: find you? Where is your tasting room located at? Our tasting room is located here at our distillery. We are at 37 Industrial Way in Buellton, California, 93427. Our website is ascendantspirits.com. I know a lot of people have a trouble with that, so if you don't mind, it's a s c e n d a N T, ascendant, not ascending. I had one person actually uh, ass-ending spirits. Okay, uh, well. which you know, <laughs> if you drink enough, maybe yeah. um, new business. idea. exactly. You know, it was a, an invoice I got. I was like, oh, did they not like me? And <laughs> yeah. uh, our Facebook is Ascendant Spirits Distillery and Tasting Room. Our Twitter is AS Distillery. Our tasting room is open Fridays four till eight p.m. And Saturdays and Sundays, 1 p.m. till 7 p.m. And on our website, we have a Find Our Spirits page. So you can find both on-premise and off-premise folks who are buying our stuff and then selling it to you. (laughs) And if you're really having trouble, nag your... And you, you want something or you've had it and you're having trouble finding it in your local area nag your local supplier in your liquor store or grocer or whomever because we can try and sell it to them but sometimes we encounter more resistance but if there's someone who's trying to buy it they'll often buy it because they know they've got someone who they can sell it to. Yeah, they know they'll sell it. Exactly. So don't be afraid to ask and you know, reach out to us if you need to find out who our distributor is. We're more than happy to provide any of that information. Excellent. Well, Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much, Zachary.